easy was it to impersonate someone famous during the Middle Ages? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello, this is Elizabeth, and welcome to the February 2nd episode of Footnoting History, because the best stories are always in the footnotes. This morning, we will be discussing Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck, pretenders to the throne? Yes, yes they were. Long before the science of fingerprinting or DNA testing, the question of how to determine identity was a thorny one, often dependent on the word of the person in question, or their backers, or at times, their detractors. After Edward V and his younger brother Richard, Duke of York, disappeared, enemies of Henry VII, most of them what was left of the Yorkist faction at the end of the Wars of the Roses, used this uncertainty in bids for control of England by presenting two young English boys, one named Lambert Simnel and the other Perkin Warbeck, as the rightful heirs to the throne. While one plot was carefully planned and the other was a result of joyful happenstance, at least to our plotters, both revealed truths about identity in the Middle Ages. Our objective today is to use their stories and present a how-to guide for pretenders who could follow three steps in the hopes of proving they were whom they claimed to be. Step one, and most important, and perhaps it should go without saying, but we'll say it anyway, it goes best when whom you wish to impersonate has disappeared. Once that requisite was satisfied, pretenders could focus on proving their claim through acting the part. Finally, when attempting to gain a kingdom without any legitimate birthright, Find loyal, powerful, wealthy, and well-connected backers. For the heroes of our tale, it was the latter that proved to be the sticking point. Step 1. Find someone who has disappeared and impersonate them. Done. Neither of the little princes in the tower, as Edward and Richard have become known, had been seen since 1483. Better luck, they even had a cousin, another Edward, although this one was the Earl of Warwick, and he had been removed from the public eye by both Richard III and Henry VII. This meant that Simnel and Warbeck could be groomed to assume the role of any of these three. Simnel, in fact, was first trained to become Richard Duke of York, but within a few months the plans changed and his backers hailed him as Edward Earl of Warwick. Once, however, the pretender was given his role to play, he needed to proceed to the next step, acting as the prince. There are two qualities which are helpful to assuming the role of a prince, public speaking and resembling the man or woman you are impersonating. Looking good in fancy clothes also helps. Simnel, whose plot was allegedly hatched by his tutor, quickly gained the support of those loyal to the Yorkist cause, and he had the first skill, even though he was only 12 years old. According to various chronicles, Simnel was able to address crowds of thousands and win them over to his plight. This ability throws a little spin on the decision that Simnel should ultimately impersonate the missing prince's cousin, Edward Earl of Warwick, as Edward was considered feeble-minded, and it was believed that Richard III kept him in confinement, for he feared that if the entire progeny of King Edward became extinct, and if someone would need to continue the bloodline, yet this child, who was also of royal blood, would still embarrass him. If Edward's feeble-mindedness can be taken as a certainty, then the extraordinarily self-possessed Lambert Simnel might have been overqualified for the job. While Warbeck, who spent part of his life in Flanders and Portugal, was considered a linguist, he did not receive the formal education which Simnel did. But, perhaps more importantly, he looked the part, or close enough, since there were few existing likenesses of the princes, and those that were available did little more than demonstrate that Edward V was blonde. In his early teens, Warbeck was apprenticed to a silk merchant and joined him aboard his trading ship. Once ashore, Warbeck was dressed in the fine clothes sold by the silk merchant. 
Unlike Simnel, who based much of his right to the throne on acting the part, it was Warbeck's likeness to Edward IV and the Yorks that not only aided in his deception, but was the catalyst for his charade. According to his confession, when Warbeck arrived in Cork Harbor, the citizens, quote, seeing him dressed in the silk clothes of his master, insisted on doing him honor as a member of the royal house of York. Okay, so the linchpin in the whole matter, and step three, your backers. In 1487, a Yorkist remnant sent Lambert Simnel from his home in Oxford to Ireland in order to begin drumming up support for the pretender. With this support, Simnel was crowned Edward VI in Ireland with the blessings of the most powerful chieftains and men in the country, such as Thomas Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare, Lord Lieutenant, and King's Deputy of Ireland. However, their support meant little to those who controlled England and Europe. If Simnel was going to be a serious threat to Henry VII's throne, he needed more than the Irish. The Duchess of Burgundy, Edward IV's sister, was more than willing to lend her support and stamp of authentication to Simnel and his venture. Her son-in-law, Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor, quickly followed suit, and through them Simnel was able to garner enough money and supplies for an invasion. The Emperor even provided Simnel with 2,000 soldiers. Simnel did not have only European supporters who declared him to be Edward Earl of Warwick and heir to the throne, but even members of the English nobility with excellent claims themselves supported him. The Earl of Lincoln, who Richard III had named as his successor following the death of his own son, wrote a letter to the city of York in June 1487, quote, styling Simnel Edward VI. According to the Parliament Rolls of November 1487, Simnel's English supporters constituted a, quote, great multitude of strangers with force and arms, including many knights, gentlemen, and squires, who combined to form a force of 8,000 persons and give, quote, strong battle against Henry VII's army. The Parliament Rolls of 1487 names many of the knights, gentlemen, and squires as the document not only chronicled the uprising, but it tainted Simnel's supporters. Despite the strong, though doomed, showing against Henry, perhaps most important to the failure of Simnel's endeavor was a lack of support for Simnel himself. According to Francis Bacon, you know, the man who was Shakespeare, none of the noble supporters meant for Simnel to rule. The Duchess of Burgundy, although she supported Simnel's claim to be Edward Earl of Warwick, had created a contingency plan. The Chronicle of Calais states that Margaret Cote would have made the Earl of Lincoln John de la Pole King of England, but the Earl was slain at Stoke. This demonstrates the more importance was attached to the fact that a Yorkist sympathizer would be placed on the English throne than concern about who that man or child would be. Luckily for Simnel, Henry VII decided not to execute the lad for treason, most likely because he had been anointed with the oil of kingship when crowned Edward V, and Henry did not want to set any dangerous precedents about not respecting the sacred unction. Instead, Simnel finished out his days working in the palace kitchen. Perkin Warbeck's bid for the English throne seems to have fared better than Lambert Simnel's, at least initially. When he first appeared in 1492, he was hailed as Richard Duke of York by the Irish. Again, the remainder of the Yorkist faction seized upon an opportunity to regain the kingship and bolstered Warbeck's claim, even supplying the pretender with a stirring story of how he escaped sharing the fate of his elder brother. Warbeck attempted to dislodge Henry VII by mocking his lack of blood right, perhaps in order to divert attention from his own questionable antecedents. In Perkins' proclamation, dating from 1487, he calls attention to Henry VII's descent from, quote, Owen Tudor of low birth. In addition, Perkin Warbeck had numerous powerful European princes as his supporters, including the Duchess of Burgundy, the King of the Romans, the Dukes of Austria and Saxony, and the Kings of Denmark and Scotland. There were cracks, however, in Warbeck's support. While the King of France had offered his help, it was not given, most likely because he had supported Henry Tudor's usurpation of the English throne and had signed a peace treaty after Richard III was removed. 
Just as the King of France found that his goals were easier to achieve while relations with England were amiable, Spain's monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, and eventually even the King of the Romans, Maximilian I, allied themselves with Henry VII. In the 1490s, Henry VII even joined the Holy League, a conglomerate of the most powerful European monarchs. The level of English support for Perkin Warbeck found its highest and lowest points in a popular rising which occurred in 1497, ten years after Lambert Simnel's failed attempt. The rising of 1497 was the result of a taxation, specifically raised to defeat Warbeck and to wage war against Warbeck's ally, James IV of Scotland. Many, ranging from peasants to gentry, felt removed from the problems of the North and refused to pay this cumbersome tax, which was the largest granted during the reign of Henry VII. The rising has also been seen as a possible guise by the men of Cornwall to delay taxation until the arrival of Perkin Warbeck, who some have argued they were waiting to support. Even if the rising was not part of Perkin's design to seize the kingship, it created the environment for, according to Bacon, quote, a dangerous triplicity to a monarchy. The arms of a foreigner, the discontent of subjects, and the title of a pretender meet. Henry VII survived this triplicity and placed the captured Warbeck in the tower. In 1499, Warbeck escaped, but he was subsequently recaptured and roomed near the ever-imprisoned, actual Edward Earl of Warwick. Legend declares that Henry VII's decision to room the two threats to his kingship near one another was part of a larger scheme, and if so, it worked. The two discussed a joint escape, and after their designs were reported to Henry, they were executed. Ultimately, Simnel and Warbeck managed to manipulate the late medieval issues surrounding identity to their advantage, but were betrayed by their own followers who had no personal loyalty to either pretender. This has been Footnoting History. If you liked our podcast, remember to check us out on the web at footnotinghistory.weebly.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Join us next week when Nicole will talk about what a French silversmith was doing in the Mongol capital of Karkorum. Until then, remember the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.